from our series, The Life We're Meant to Live. Um, and we'll be shortly beginning a series in the book of John, which we're really excited about. There's just something unique about being on the ground with Jesus in living color, and there's just never a dull moment. So we're going to be looking at that. We just want to invite you, if you're new to the church and didn't know we're heading in that direction, please join us for that series. It's just going to be a great opportunity to see the Savior in action. So join us for that. That'll probably be starting next week or the week after. Uh, but this morning just felt led to return and bring some focus back to the importance simply of Scripture. <laughs> In our lives, we just cannot review this enough. The Bible, the Bible is our sustenance. God's word is is that by which we grow and are matured. God's word is what brought creation into being. God's word is what brings us to new life. So we need God's word. It is absolutely crucial for our lives. So that's where we are this morning. Let me just begin by asking us the question just personally. Where are you with respect to the word of God? What, what's your experience concerning the Bible. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, what do you get out of that? What's the big deal with, with, with the Bible? With every, Christians talking about the scriptures. What do you get out of that? What's your experience in scripture? Where would you go? Would you be on the side of, in, in all honesty, just saying the words like boredom come to mind, uh, primitive, uh, culturally remote, difficult to understand, blah, would that be the side or would you be on the other side where you would just be pumped and the Bible gets my blood flowing and it makes me come alive and it transforms me and it's beautiful and it's penetrating and it's powerful. Where do you come down on the scale of of response to God's word? It's not difficult to put together quickly, just Google search and put together a, a group of broad range voices with respect to the power and beauty of the Bible in their personal experience. Listen to these quotes. H.L. Mencken, he's a 19th century opponent of Christianity. He was a writer, author. He wrote this about the Bible. The Bible is, quote, unquestionably the most beautiful book in the world. Immanuel Kant, German agnostic philosopher of the 18th century, wrote a single line in the Bible has consoled me more than all the books I've ever read. Abraham Lincoln said, the Bible's the best gift God has given to man. Theodore Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Listen to this. This is from Ambrose. He's a 4th fourth, fourth century bishop of Milan. He's also the mentor of the titan Augustine. And Ambrose wrote this, as in paradise, God walks in the Holy Scriptures seeking man. What a beautiful picture that is. Obviously, that's hearkening back to, to Genesis where God's walking through the garden, calling Adam's name. And Ambrose says, that's just like what he does in the Bible. He walks through the pages of Scripture, calling out to men, seeking us. Is that your experience with the Bible? Martin Luther wrote, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. What about a few other voices, familiar voices? This is from a poem written by someone who was writing as though writing to God himself. And it says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That was King David in Psalm 119. What about this? 
all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That was the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was Jesus himself. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. So obviously there are many voices, significant voices, we might say, who in history have come along and have said the Bible is a penetrating, powerful book. It's a book by which we experience the living God. He speaks to us. He seeks us out. He transforms us. He informs us about life. But where are we? Where am I with respect to the Bible? What is my pursuit in terms of the Bible? Have you ever experienced, as you have your Bible cracked open and you're reading through Genesis or you're reading through the Psalms, have you ever had the sense that God was walking through that book, calling your name, seeking you out, inviting you into the knowledge of himself, into an experience of something beyond this world? into an extraterrestrial experience? Have you ever sensed that before as you read the Bible? Is there any sense in which we can cultivate that kind of experience? Or is it just simply God's call, where God just, whenever he wants to, on occasion, just pops in to your devotional time of reading the Bible? Or are there ways that we might tune our ear to hear God's voice as we read the scriptures? That's where we're headed this morning, but first let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to enlighten our minds, to renew our wills, to enable us to see again your glory, to see something of your greatness and majesty and mercy. So we ask you, Spirit of God, Meet with us here as we open your word, as we talk about your word. Transform our lives. Give us a hunger for your word that we would say like Jesus, we don't live by bread. We live by your word. That is the primary nourishment we need in our lives. Convince us of that, Lord, this morning afresh. Amen. One of the ways to discern whether or not you have any kind of musical capability whatsoever is whether or not you are able to listen to, we could start here, if I just wanted to find out if you have any kind of musical ability, we could just turn a CD on, and if you didn't have an ability to pick out any particular instrument at all, then you would officially be flatlined in terms of the musical skill capabilities that would be in you. In other words, when we're, when we're working as a band together, sometimes we'll, we'll listen to CDs individually, just on our own time, just listen to stuff and try to pay attention to what our particular instrument player is doing on that Hillsongs project or that Chris Tomlin project. And what you have to have in that moment is an ability to pick out of all the noise and the drum beats and the bass beats and all that stuff. You have to be able to hear that string line. Or that strum pattern, is it, is it muted strum action? Is it resonating strum? Is it arpeggiating? Is it finger picking? What's going on in the guitar part? And so the ability to discern that 
it points to an ear that has some training or an ear that has some internal capabilities of deciphering the difference between the whole cloud of noise and your instrument. In the same way, there there is a sense in which God is speaking all the time in at least three ways in the Bible. And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, particularly the accent this morning is going to be on the Old Testament. Because the New Testament has a lot of propositions, right? The epistles, God is love. And whoever says he loves God and doesn't love his brother, he's a liar. It's just very straightforward letter language, right? Propositional truths. In the Old Testament, we have the narratives, we have poems, we have prophetic, apocalyptic, weird animals and stuff and things with four eyes. And all that stuff's in the Old Testament, right? We've got some of that going on. And it can be a little harder to discern, God, what are you saying as I'm reading through genealogies? What are you saying as I'm reading through the ceremonial laws? How how can I hear God's voice in Leviticus? Is that even possible? And yet, I think just like with the the cello line, like, for example, if you listen to my kids were watching Prince of Egypt a couple of days ago, and they had this beautiful little line. I just asked Nick Missios before the, the meeting what that's called. He says it's called a motive. Where it's, it's this, this line that's familiar. It's, it's just a five note line. Bum, ba, da, bum, bum. And you'll hear, if you watch Prince of Eve, you'll hear that, those five notes in the string section all across the whole movie. And you can hear the song that it belongs in, the song it was kind of born in. And then there are other moments where Moses is, is kind of mano a mano with Pharaoh and all that stuff is going on. And you can hear in the background behind all the fireworks and all the loud music. You hear that little string line behind there. And what it's doing is it's, it's asking you, almost subliminally, to recall where that note first happened. In the same sense, there are these string lines that we have to tune our ear to hear. God is always playing these three string lines. In the midst of the entire Old Testament, there are three things that as we read through the Old Testament, we can constantly, virtually constantly hear God speaking. In every one of these categories. One. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his nature. His character. His attributes. His capabilities. Two. He's talking about us. He's talking about man. The nature of man. Three. He's telling us the great story. We might say that. That. Tuning our ear to these three string lines that run through the Old Testament is a means by which we cultivate three awarenesses. That's what we're looking at this morning. First is a God awareness. There is no question who is the most important character in the Bible. Is there God? God is the hero. He is the protagonist. He is the savior. The stories are not about, they are not about Daniel and the lion's den. They are not about David and Goliath. Ultimately, they are about God. God is proclaiming himself. The the Bible is preeminently, above all things that the Bible is, is preeminently the self-disclosure of God. It is God revealing himself to us. The Westminster Catechism, the question is asked, what does the Bible primarily teach? The answer is very simple. The Bible primarily teaches what man must believe about God. Secondly, and what God requires of man. But the first thing that comes to mind is that the Bible primarily teaches what we believe about God. It gives us access to beholding God 
as he truly is. Your Bible is a God-centered Bible. You know that? Your Bible is a God-centered Bible. And this is, that's therapeutic to us. Because the thing that we need the most is to see and be satisfied by God. By a vision of the greatness of God. There's nothing that we need more than that in life. So the Bible is not primarily a manual for fixing our parenting situations. It's not a manual for coping with life's problems. Before it is any of those things, it is a self-revelation of God. God is saying in every text of Scripture, this is who I am. Look at me. Behold my glory. Behold my justice. Behold my holiness. Behold my mercy. I am God. I am the creator. I am the redeemer. I am the sustainer. He's saying that in book after book after book. Do we hear it? Are we listening for it? Ask yourself the question as you read the Bible. This is how you tune your ear to the string line of God awareness. Ask yourself as you read the Bible, where is God? What is God doing while this passage is unfolding? What is he saying? What's his attitude toward this situation? Is that clear in this passage? We need to see the beauty and the glory of God. If you start in Genesis, you see there's God at the beginning of the book, right? He's, there's God acting in creation, creating all things. If you go all the way to the back of the book in Revelation, there's God in the restoration of all things. And everything in between the creation of all things and the restoration of all things is the unfolding of the movement from creation to restoration. Everything that starts in Genesis is on trajectory. The trajectory is set in Genesis 3 for Revelation 22. It's all in there and it's an unfolding of the purpose of God which redounds to the glory of God. We're going to talk in a minute about that purpose, about that story. That's playing its way through the entire Old Testament into the New Testament. But that story is about something beyond the story itself. It's about the glory of God. Heaven is a God-centered heaven. What is in heaven? What's at the geographic center of heaven? Is it not the throne of God? Toward which the worship of a billion redeemed sinners is aimed. The glory of God is the point of the Bible. Do we get that? Remember Psalm 27, 4. David, what do you want to see the most? One thing have I desired. If I could have one thing from God, it would be to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why do you want to be in that house? Good music? Cool preaching? Great illustrations? Funny pastor? What, what is it about that house? No, it... In so far as he liked the music or he liked the preaching, it's because the music and the preaching pointed to God. This is, this is a God-centered pulpit in this church. That, that is the main reason, touching the ministry of the church, that's the main reason we moved our family here from Longview, Texas in 2000. We were praying about where to go, contacted Keith, we were talking back and forth. He started sending us tapes just to say, Here, here's the sound of the church. Here's kind of where things are. And we just heard that God-centered message after message after message. This is a God-centered pulpit. And it's a God-centered pulpit because we preach from a God-centered Bible given to us by a God-centered God. 
God is God-centered. And by the way, any, for God to be anything other, other than God-centered would be idolatry. Because it would be to act as though something that is not God is God. God, it's appropriate for God to make himself the center of all things because he is the center of all things. He is preeminent, Colossians 1 says, above all earthly powers, unrivaled. So it is fully appropriate for God to put his glory on display and to fight for his glory more than he fights for anything, even your salvation. He fights for his glory more than anything. Augustine said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his own dignity. God fights for his glory. Read the, read the prophets. You want to hear him fighting for his glory? Even when he saves his people, he says, my name's sake, for my name's sake, I came and reached out and brought you to myself. He repeats it over. It's the course of the prophets. This is a God-centered God, and that is glorious truth. Very simply, God is worshipped simply and fundamentally because God is God. So when we read our Bibles, these stories ultimately are not about courage and the Samaritan being good to his neighbor and right, right relationships and overcoming peer pressure. It's not about that. It's a story about the greatness of God being on display. We just started reading our family, reading through Genesis, and we just finished Genesis. We're trying to read a chapter or two every night. And we just got finished reading through Genesis and just transitioned into Exodus. And I'm so excited about reading the book of Exodus. And just trying to set this up in a way that nine and a six and a three-year-old can track. Okay, so we're not trying to be overly ambitious here. But I'm just bubbling with excitement about this book of Exodus. We just begun it because I want my kids, I want them as we read through this book to hear God saying, I am mighty to save. I want every chapter we truck through in the book of Exodus. I want them hearing that string line. I'm mighty to save amidst all the noise, amidst all the complaining in Egypt. I want them hearing that in the midst of the complaining of Egypt in the wilderness. I want them seeing the patience of God on display as they complain while they're chewing miracle food. I want them seeing God's display of his patience. We continue reading through the Old Testament. We get into where the the spies go into the land in Jericho and they come back and they say, we can't take these guys. I want them hearing God shouting, why don't you believe me? Big feet, sharp swords, come on your father's walk through standing oceans. You doubt my power. Don't you remember the stories they told you about the bobbing Egyptian army? carcasses floating on top of the water when I reinstated the law of gravity. You remember that? Big feet? Come on. This is a God-centered Bible. Hear it. We read through the Psalms. I want them hearing God saying, I'm near to my people who suffer. When they call to me, I'll answer them. You read psalm after psalm after psalm. This guy's almost dying. He's saying, I'm rotting away in my flesh. Will the dust praise you? Are you going to let me out of this? I want them hearing God saying, yes, I will. 
We read through Proverbs. I want as we read and we see the voice of wisdom standing on top of rooftops and running out into the streets like a madman saying, come, listen to me. Oh, simple ones, oh, foolish ones, come and hear what I've got to say. I'll make your crooked path straight. I'll set your life on a course that you won't have regret chasing you down for the rest of your lives. Listen to what I've got to say. I want them hearing God saying that. But they're not going to hear it if we read through that book and just look for principles and just go verse by verse without thinking. Where is God in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? I want them hearing God saying, I'm the only one who gives meaning to life. I'm the only one who satisfies. I'm the only one who can keep you from living your whole life and looking back and saying, that was worthless. That was futile. That was vanity. I am the God who alone satisfies. Are they going to hear it? Do you hear it? Do you hear it when you read through the prophetic books of the Old Testament? Do you hear God saying things? Not just in the text itself, but in the mere presence of the next name of the next prophet. Do you know the simple name of the next prophet is a loud statement of the patience of God? God is saying... It's just the name Amos. You don't have to read a word in the book of Amos or Jeremiah or Isaiah. You don't have to read a word in that book before it's already speaking the patience of God that he would send another man to be mocked by the people and killed. That he would send another man to say, come, turn to me, for I am God and there is no other. Cultivate a God awareness. Ask the questions as you read the Bible. What is God doing? Where is God in this passage? It will create experiences of worship as you read the Bible that way. Self-awareness. God, through his word, answers the biggest questions that have burdened human souls since the moment we left the Garden of Eden. Who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world? How can those wrongs be made right? Those are the fundamental questions. They have burdened philosophers before the time of Jesus. What's going on in this world? This world is broken. I am broken. What's going on? How how can this be changed? Is there something beyond this life? That offers recovery of this situation in life, the futility of life in this world. The Bible, the point is, the Bible doesn't have its feet planted in midair. The Bible, the Bible has earth in it. It's an earthy book. It's got gristle, it's got sin and gore and jealousy and adultery and head games and political power plays. It's, got, it's all up in there. It's got empty religion. It's New Orleans. The Bible is New Orleans. It lives right where you live. It, it knows where I live. It is very acquainted with my life. It is not culturally remote. It is not. The Bible knows all the factors that are going on in my own heart, my own life. There are dozens of points of identification between my life and the Bible on any given day. So I want to remember to ask personal questions as I'm reading the Bible. What does this text say about David, about his heart? What does it say about not only his heart, my heart? 
What does this passage say about Peter's fickleness and mine? About Abraham's dishonesty? About Sarah's unbelief and mine? Which thief am I on the cross as we read through that? Am I the one who's doubting and cynical? Am I the one who's hopeful and crying out for salvation? Who am I in this parable as I read through this parable in the New Testament? Am I the younger brother who grabs all the inheritance and runs off into a foreign land so I have some elbow room to indulge in my pursuit of sin and satisfaction outside of God? Or am I the older brother who looks down his nose in self-righteousness at everyone else and, and relates to God as though God owes me something for my consistent quiet times? Who am I? As I read the passage of Scripture, is God the Holy Spirit? As we ask these questions, going to withhold from us a revelation of who we are and what we're struggling with and where He wants to change us and transform us? Ask personal questions. It's easy to get lost in the information and the doctrines and to walk away with no application, no transformation. You know the whole sequence. of the Old Testament and what came first and who lived before whom and who was a contemporary of whom in the prophet scale. That's, that's all in there somewhere, but personal application, is it going on in your life? Well, maybe it's not because you're not asking self-awareness questions while you read the Bible. Lord, locate me in this passage. Tell me what's going on in my heart. Locate the idols that are in my heart. There will be plenty of room for conviction of sin with these questions. But, this is something, I think God was getting me on this even last night. (laughs) Just thinking over this and praying over this. Don't assume that's the only category he wants to talk to you about. In terms of self-awareness. You know, if, if you've come to trust in Christ and you've been rescued from sin and brought into the family of God, well now there are some glorious things that God can say about who you are. And you need to hear that too. (laughs) Every bit as much as you need to hear that convicting word about where you need to change in another area. Why? Because you're not in the perfect fullness of the stature of the likeness of Christ yet. So you know, as you go to God in prayer, you go to God in the word, you know there's another area he can put his finger on and say, that's still not looking like Jesus totally. You know that. And so sometimes we can just come into default saying, okay, show me where the new area of sin is. You know, sometimes God in his word He wants to simply encourage us and comfort us and give us assurance of salvation and assurance of grace and of faith. There are some glorious truths as you read the Bible that God will say, that's you. That guy, that's you. You As we're singing this morning, there's a reality. I can bring you guys up to speed on a reality in my own life. Thanks be to God. It's a reality for many of your lives as well. This is the latest news. (laughs) As of this morning and previous history in my life, I stand here totally forgiven. Completely forgiven. We sing in our song, Beautiful Savior, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed. That is a glorious truth that I need God to remind me and assure my soul. There there are many more like that. You know what? I'm set this morning. I'm set to inherit Everything that the perfectly righteous Son of God merited from His Father. That is just great news. 
It's set. The deal has been done. It's all in writing. The down payment has been given. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. He's coming back to to fulfill the deal and to consummate this. It is set in place. Now, don't you see how asking these kinds of questions can bring us to precious places of restoration and conviction of sin and confession and assurance of grace and salvation? Simply asking God, who am I in this passage? Point to me. Show me. Show me where I am. Self-awareness means that we're paying attention to the Spirit as we read. We're asking not only to see God, but to be transformed personally, really, practically. This, This question reckons with the reality that God has an agenda for your life. He has an agenda for my life. And I, too, want to be about that agenda. I want him to show, I want him to shine his light on my life and to change me and to transform me as I read his word. We need that. It's not just about God awareness and a self awareness, there is an important dimension that we might call promise awareness or gospel awareness. Look at this quote from Edmund Clowney. He says, anyone who has had Bible stories read to him as a child knows that there are great stories in the Bible. But it is possible to know Bible stories, yet miss the Bible story. In John 5, 39 and 40 and 46, look at this quote from Scripture. It says, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the Scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament. You search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they, the scriptures in the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Remember Jesus just after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. And he sees, he sees his disciples walking down the road and they're just kind of kicking up dust and they're dejected and depressed And he knows what they're talking about. We lose. Oh, well. And so he comes into the conversation and he disguises himself somehow so that they can't recognize him. And he says, what happened? What's the deal? And they say, what what happened? Are you the only guy in Israel who doesn't know what just happened? Come on. Jesus, the one who was really powerful, raising people from the dead and stuff, and had favor with, with God and with men and did signs and wonders before the people and he was he was delivered up by the chief priests and the elders and he was delivered over to be crucified and then they went on to say but we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel and Jesus comes out of hiding and he says oh foolish ones slow of heart to believe what all that the gospel said all the epistles said no all that the prophets have spoken Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's reminding them, you have read Isaiah 53. You remember the suffering servant. He doesn't just kind of ride in on a white horse and take the kingdom by storm. First, he gets crushed. And he ransoms his people and buys them out of slavery to sin. You remember, that was in the Old Testament, in the prophets. You should have seen that. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible, the Old Testament, is about Jesus. 
The story there is underneath every little story is this grand story. The scholars call it the meta narrative, the narrative above the narratives. All these other stories are going on. Details and cities and Dan and Beersheba and Haran and Egypt and all this stuff's going on. And you have to keep your ear listening to the sound of the great story that is building. And it's, it's gaining momentum and steam and content and clarity as it pushes its way toward revelation. We have to hear that. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. It's to set things up for the coming of the Son of God. Do we hear that? As we read the Old Testament, are we aware of the bigger story? Acts 8.32, now the passage of scripture he was reading, who was he? He is the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading a scroll one day. And he's reading a scroll from Isaiah, from the prophetic book of Isaiah. And, and the Holy Spirit sees it and he goes and he grabs Philip and he sends Philip over there to him. So Philip just kind of pops up next to this guy. Looks over the corner of his chariot, looks inside, he's like, oh, yeah, I see you're reading Isaiah. The guy reads it. He said, this is the passage I'm reading. And I was just about to, I was wondering out loud what this is about. Philip said, I'd be happy to tell you. Here's the passage. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, I add, and grinned. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's amazing. Philip preached the gospel out of the prophetic book. The gospel was all there. The way that Philip knew it was he heard the string line coming through in the book of Isaiah. And he saw this is not about Isaiah. Isaiah is writing about someone who's going to come in about 800 years down the road and accomplish the redemption of his people. So he explains it. I have a couple of things in the back of your outline just for you to pursue a greater understanding of this. This particular awareness takes more time to cultivate. Uh, it's because there, you're looking at, at, at genealogies. You're, you're studying the line of Abraham. You're picking up on themes, types and shadows and foreshadows, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it takes a lot of time to where you, you would have to just immerse yourself in the Old Testament for three or four years to be able to really hear all the sounds of the, might say, the symphony of the great story. Or you can get helpful books where teachers say, look, I've been studying this for years. Look, look, look for this, and then look for this, and look for that. And they, they sharpen your vision to be able to see what's there in the Old Testament. But, but here it is, okay, beginning in Genesis and moving through Revelation, and you come through the patriarchs, and you come through the Exodus, and then you're into priests, and then you're into kings, and then you're into prophets and exile, and all of this is there. And in the midst and underneath all of these movements is this gathering story of redemption. It's pointing toward a Messiah who is to come. He is the hope of Israel. It starts in Genesis Three. Turn, turn with me, if you would. Turn to Genesis 3. 
In the beginning, God creates and he makes man in his image. And then he, he gives Eve to Adam. He institutes marriage. He institutes the creation of culture through family. All of this starts to come through and he gives them the garden, all of its beauty to till it, to cultivate it, to work it as a joy in his life. And then the fall comes and and Adam and Eve, they make a grab for godness. This is not when God curses Adam and Eve, he is not slapping them with eternal punishment for misdemeanor. They made a grab for godness. They did exactly what Satan did. That's, That's what Satan sold them. He sold them on the same pill that he got. He comes and he says, look, all this garden, all this beautiful stuff around you, this one tree, you ever wonder why God doesn't want you to eat this? Because if you eat it, you'll be just like him. You'll know everything he knows. You'll be just as good as God. And they made a grab for Godness. And God knew it. And God came and he cursed Adam and Eve and even creation itself, Romans 8, was subjected to futility. And ever since that moment, even the creation, it says, has been groaning for release from the captivity of its curse. And so have our hearts been groaning for release from the bondage of sin. And that comes hard down in chapter 3. But before we even get out of the chapter, we hear a promise. In the New Testament, the Greek word for gospel, for good news, is euangelion. Scholars call Genesis 3.15 the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. This is the first moment where, where God tips the card and gives a hint, an inkling, that there will yet be a hope for redemption. That this curse is not the last word on humankind. And you see that promise when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent, to Satan. Between your offspring and her offspring. Capital O, offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first promise. That's the first gospel inkling in the Bible. And then when you transition, you keep moving through and the story doesn't get any better. Man rebels in Genesis 6, six chapters in before God waxes the whole planet, saves only eight people in the ark. Then they get down on land and it doesn't get any better. They start to build a tower of Babel, make another grab for Godness. God confuses their language and spreads them all over the world. And then Genesis 12, for some reason, at the end of these cataclysmic falls, God keeps coming in with promises. You already see the pattern of fall and redemption. The pattern of our contribution of sin and God's contribution of grace. It's already in motion at the very beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, grace and promise motif goes into high gear. This passage could very well be seen as the covenantal hinge for the entire Bible. One author said, everything that comes before Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, leads up to it. Everything that comes after Genesis 12, 1 to 3, fulfills it. This is a covenant hinge. He's making a promise to Abraham. Look at it in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing 
I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a thick fourfold covenant promise. And that is the unifying theme for the entire Bible. Mark Dever has written two very helpful surveys of the Old and New Testaments, and he titles them very simply, The Message of the Old Testament, Promises Made. The Message of the New Testament, Promises Kept. The Bible is, is, is looking to cultivate a promise awareness. Are you, as you read the Old Testament, keeping your eye on the promise? Are you watching from Genesis 12? Are you watching that thing move? You watching that promise? That is the big deal to watch in the Old Testament as you read through. You will hear all kinds of cool things from God as you pay attention to that. Look at this quote from B.B. Warfield talking about the unity of the Bible around this theme. Let us once penetrate beneath all this diversity and observe the internal character of the volume. That is the volume of Scripture as a whole. And the most striking unity is found to pervade the whole. The parts are so linked together that the absence of any one book would introduce confusion and disorder. The same doctrine is taught from beginning to end. Each book indeed adds something in clearness, definition, or even increment to what the others proclaim. What is that thread? Graham Goldsworthy puts it very simply. God is bringing His people into his place under his rule. God is bringing his people into his place under his rule. Now, it's not that simple, though, because in the Old Testament, there is a tension between the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God. Right? God, God can't, in a sense, God can't simply give this promise and this blessing to Abraham. It has to be bought for Abraham. Why? Because Abraham's a sinner. And so is his whole messed up family down behind him. And having sinned against God and committed cosmic treason, each of them making their own in different ways, their own grab for Godness, God could not, the New Testament says, God cannot deny himself. Part of God is not simply love. God is intrinsically just and holy, and his holiness automatically reacts to sin. He cannot, Habakkuk 1.13 says, he cannot tolerate evil or even look on sin. So how? How is God going to fulfill this promise in Genesis 3.15? How is, how is God going to come and crush the head of sin and evil and Satan without crushing us, sinners? How are we going to survive? How is God going to pour out blessings and promises on someone who has sinned against him. That's where we're getting right to the heart of the great story. Because the great story, the great story culminates in the great exchange. Where, where Jesus comes. He is the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And he comes. And he's coming to, to bear the penalty for the sins of the world. You do realize all that stuff in the Old Testament, all those sacrificial systems, they were not paying the sin debt down for Israel. You know that. And God was not 
atoning their sins. God was not satisfied by their killing a couple pigeons and setting them on fire. That was not what God was after. No, amidst the, the harmonized relationship that was afforded to Israel on the basis of the ceremonial system, nonetheless, all that was happening to the sin debt was the balance was being transferred back and back and back. And there was this mounting, mounting debt of sin and iniquity. And in the fullness of time, God sends his son to pay the debt off completely. That's what you're seeing when you're reading through the Old Testament. That's what's going on. Those sacrifices were reminders of the holiness of God. They were reminders of the sinfulness of the people. And they were ultimately symbols looking forward to the fulfillment of all those promises in Christ, the sin bearer. Which is why it's so significant that when we get into the New Testament, and John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's the herald of the king himself. And he comes on and he's baptizing people in the River Jordan under repentance. And then he looks up and he sees Jesus. And his first words hearken back to the entire matrix of the Old Testament system of ceremony and covenant. And what title does he pick for that oncoming one? Behold the Lamb of God who pays the mounting sin debt of his people who takes the sin of the world. But this brings us right to the heart of the gospel. The good news of the Bible. Why? Why did Jesus have to be fully man and fully God? It was because the representative had to be a man. Because the offending party was humanity. So the one who would come and take the rap for offending humanity had to himself be a man through and through. Bleeds like you do. Pain. Hungry. Tired. Just like we are. He comes as a perfect high priest to represent us. He brings himself under the law. That's why he was baptized. Not, to, not for any kind of remission of sins. He's baptized. He brings himself under the, under the law. He goes to the temple like everybody else. He has to be fully man, but he has to be fully God because not even a superman, not even a, another perfect Adam could bear the penalty of an infinite debt of sin. Right? To sin against a being that is infinite in value is an infinite grievance. We have that concept even in our own system where, where there's something called murder. And then there's something, if someone tries to kill the president, that's called what? Assassination. That's an attempt on the leader of the nation. It's different. So to attempt and to commit cosmic treason against God is an infinite sin, which brings an infinite penalty and that infinite penalty can't be borne by a finite man only Jesus in fully God can dive onto the infinite bomb blast of the wrath of God and absorb it fully in his body with none of it eking out from underneath him and taking out two or three people around him only Jesus can dive on that 
bomb that's been ticking through the Old Testament and it's about to blow. And in the fullness of time, Jesus in Hebrews, it says he stood and he said, I will go. And God sends his own son to bear his own wrath. God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the great exchange. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. The moment we put our faith in him, wrath is removed completely. And in, the, in that sense, that's why the end time question is very significant for everyone who doesn't take Jesus as their savior. Because God, in his justice, God is glorified in his justice and his mercy. He's glorious in his justice. Just like every time someone gets a sentence before a judge, the judge is glorified in the administration of justice, not mercy. He's glorified when that guy goes walking into the cell and spends the rest of his life there. That glorifies, in a sense, the judge. God is gloriously just. And that's why at the end of the day, God looks at you and at me and at everyone around us and he says, here's the deal. I will be glorified in my mercy on those who take my offer of salvation through Jesus. And I will be glorified in my justice for those who reject it. Here's the deal. Either Jesus pays your sin debt or I'll take it from you. Justice is not swept under the rug. Holiness and mercy meet on the cross because Jesus says, anyone who puts their faith in me, I'll drown all your sins right now. You put your faith, all your hope, all your trust, not in your works, but in what I've done, I'll take your sins down and you'll never see them again. That's the gospel. Do you see that as you read the Old Testament? What was up with the Passover in Egypt? As, as God told the people to go and kill a lamb and to apply the blood over the door so that when the angel of judgment and death came in, it would pass over them. It would spare them judgment. Was that not to foreshadow the perfect Lamb of God who offers His blood? And then when we put our faith, He applies His blood to the doorpost of our lives and we're off scot-free from all of our charges of guilt before God. Are you aware of that message as you read through the Bible? Do you hear that story? Why the genealogies? Why the endless list of genealogies? Because... The Old Testament's primary concern to never lose the line of Abraham. Genesis 12 is significant. And then another massive moment. Never lose the line of David. Those lines are headed somewhere in the Bible. Every prophet, every priest, every king foreshadows the perfect prophet and priest and king. Every time you're reading a prophet in the Old Testament, you can... You can have that gospel awareness that the perfect prophet is yet to come. The prophet who will reveal the will of God to us for our salvation. Every time you read about a priest in the Old Testament, you can see the foreshadowing gospel trajectory of the perfect priest who will atone for our sins, who will offer himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and he continually intercedes for us. Every time you see a king in the Old Testament, that's a type and a shadow of the coming perfect king who will bring us under his power, who will rule and defend us, who will restrain and conquer all our enemies. Every prophet, priest and king, every office, every tabernacle, ceremony, 
He was, Jesus was both the priest and the people and the sacrifice itself. He fulfills every type in the Old Testament. Every promise in the Old Testament comes through Jesus. He is the second Adam. He's the new Moses. He's the new Joshua. He's the son of David. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Does that all sound familiar? That's all in the Old Testament. Jesus has come to fulfill all of that. He's the sacrifice for the people. He's the toning offering. Why? This makes sense of so much and it adds so much worship to our reading of the Old Testament. Why is it unthinkable that the people of Egypt, are, the people of Israel are going to die in Egypt? Why is it impossible that they're going to die out there? Why is it impossible that they're going to die in starvation in the wilderness? Because somewhere down in that group of rebels at the foot of Mount Sinai is the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham. Genesis 12. It's asking for fulfillment through the rest of the Old Testament. And somewhere down in that bunch of cow-worshipping rebels at the foot of Mount Sinai is the great, 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 great grandpa of Jesus, the Messiah. The one who will redeem his people, who will prepare the place, who will inaugurate the rule of a kingdom that is endless and full of joy and peace. Remember the prophecies that the government would be upon his shoulders and he would be called the Prince of Peace? That's all shown. That's all there as you read your Old Testament. God walks through the pages of Scripture seeking men. Seeking you. For what? To show you himself. To show you his greatness, his majesty, his compassion, his holiness, his mercy. He walks through the pages of Scripture to show you yourself. To show you in and of yourself a rebellious turncoat on the one who created you. Trying to run around in a futile search for satisfaction outside of God. Trying to live your life by your own rules. But to show you yourself as you respond to the offer of salvation that he gives to show you that you are a son and daughter of the most high God in heaven will not begrudge your entrance. Just like the prodigal, God will run for you, for me. He will embrace us. Then what? Robes, rings, Feasts, music, dancing, rejoicing for thousands of years. And God walks through the pages of Scripture to show you the gospel by which fallen history is rewritten and creation is recreated under the rule of God, in the place of God for the glory of the self-revealing 
God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word is not simply a system of doctrines. It's not simply a a chronicle of interesting stories of history. It's not, as the History Channel would call it to be, a really cool manual for learning how to do battle. Lord, your word reveals you to us. Lord, you in your word, say, this is who I am. Thank you that you, in your word, say, this is who you are, and this is who I've made you to be. Thank you that you go on to say, this is what I've done to make you into what I created you to be. Thank you that in Scripture we see God, we see ourselves, we see the Gospel. And Lord, would you grant us illumination by your Spirit even this week that as we read through wherever we are in our Bibles, we would be taking notes of what you're doing, who you are, of who we are, of what we're doing, and of what you've done. Let's stand and worship God. Before there was time, there were visions in your mind. There was death in the fall of mankind. But there was life in salvation's design. Before there were days, there were nights I could not see your face. But the night couldn't keep me from grace When you came and you took my place So I cry, Holy, Only Begotten Son of God Ancient of Days I cry, Holy, Only Begotten Son of God Sing the praises of the ones who saved me and the promises he made before there was time. Just bow our heads for a moment. Just feel led to to make an offer. The, the very offer that Jesus offered himself when he invited people to come and follow him. The very offer that Paul and Peter and John and Barnabas and Philip and Stephen made throughout the New Testament. That is an offer to respond to the salvation that Jesus has provided. So if there's anyone in here who maybe you've never heard the gospel the way you heard it this morning about about Jesus coming and fully paying your sin debt for you.
You are totally free. You are set to inherit eternal blessings at the right hand of God. You never heard that stuff before. And something in your heart said, I want that. Maybe a different point of the message connected with you. Maybe you have felt yourself to be on that endless search for meaning and satisfaction outside of God. And you just keep on bumping into the reality that you can't find it. And God has revealed that to you. And he's stirring your heart right now just to say, come to me. I've just been waiting for you. God offers for you to come. And you can come and you can respond in a very simple form by simply praying and asking him to save you. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you don't have to do this out loud, you can just do it in your own heart, your own mind. God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He hears. He knows all things. He knows the thoughts that are on our hearts. He knows the word before it's even on our tongues. Just before God right now, we can all bow. And if your heart is being drawn, you feel like something's making your heart pound right now. God's saying, come to me. Just trust me. Come to me. And I'm going to lead you. And I'm just going to, I'll put a phrase out there just to give you some way to articulate what's inside of you. And you just echo that out with your voice or in your heart to God. And then we'll go back and sing a song exalt the Lord together. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. But I am aware that by myself I cannot live the kind of life that you've called me to live. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've tried to live life my own way. I ask you to take control. Save me by your mercy. Take that blood that was put on the top of the doors in Egypt and put it on the top of the door of my life and cover all my sins and give me all your righteousness and awaken my heart to live for you. I love you. I need you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that, would you please tell the person that you know that's here? If you don't know anyone here, uh, would you come forward and tell me so we can give you some resources and help support you in your new faith and help you get strengthened in the Lord, help you hear the gospel. You need to hear it not just once. You need to hear it every day, rolling over your heart, wiping away your, your conscience that is plagued with guilt. You need the gospel just washing it out every day. So come, tell someone that you know, or, or come forward and tell me at the end of the meeting. But let's worship God. Let's, let's turn this revelation of the godness of God, let's turn this revelation of who we are because of what he's done and turn this revelation of the gospel back to him in worship.